welcome Shankar and welcome back to folks that maybe are listening to us on the podcast in the future. It is week eight of germ syllabus and this week's theme is called content moderation is hard, which is kind of a sarcastic title, but I am sarcastic. We're really happy to welcome Shankar Ponikanti tonight, the CTO of Trust Lab. And this is just some language from the company. Trust Lab provides cutting edge software and metrics to the world's largest social media platforms, online marketplaces, and apps to enable them to protect their users against against misinformation, hate speech, identity fraud, and other harmful content. And we're really grateful and lucky to have you here. Um, Your co-founder and CEO, Tom Siegel, is one of Germ's advisors. So that's how we got introduced to you. And as usual, I want to share a few thoughts to kick us off before we dialogue with Shankar and Brett, who is here, my co-founder under the Germ account, and whoever else shows up this hour. Um, As many of you know, Germ Network is social media built to empower you, starting with a secure messenger designed for Gen Z. And I'm Tessa. I was a digital literacy expert at Stanford before leaving to found this company. And Brett is an awesome UX designer in here as well. And this series that we've been doing that we're incredibly getting towards the end of, we called it Germ Syllabus. And it's really a course. All of the materials that I mentioned tonight are up in our Discord. The link is in my bio and also in Germ's bio on Twitter. We're here every Tuesday night for two more weeks after tonight, and we also hang out in our Discord voice chat on Fridays. And next week, we have another advisor visiting us, encryption policy expert Rihanna Pfefferkorn. I want to share a few of the themes that have emerged over our seven conversations so far. Last week, we talked to Jane M. about affirmative consent in platform design And that conversation really echoed a lot of our major motifs from what I'm thinking of as this season, like centering marginalized people and women of color in our conception of tech ethics and the importance of considering and designing business models that synergize with our missions. The last couple of weeks we've been thinking about a lot have also taken place on what is now Elon Musk's Twitter And this is a place where hate speech against gay and trans people is up by over 50% in the last few weeks, and slurs against Black people have more than doubled in the last few weeks. So it's a really important time and a great time to be talking about content moderation. We have Shankar Ponikanti here, who I mentioned, who is at Trust Lab and was previously at Google. And before we start to dialogue, I just wanted to share a couple of the articles that I put up in our Discord this week. These are some of the pieces that are kind of informing my thinking this week, and I also um, just tweeted these as well. So I have one piece called, Here's How Facebook is Trying to Moderate Its 2 Billion Users, and that piece from Vice discusses the cultural, technical, and logistical challenges of an American company trying to institute uniform content policies for users around the world. I have a piece called Running Twitter is Going to Disappoint Elon Musk, um, which made a lot of predictions that seem like they're kind of coming true. 
there's a really kind of heavy but fascinating piece in there called Meta Meets the Reality of War, which is about the challenges of content moderation in the context of the Russia-Ukraine war, where, you know, what we might think of as cultural differences are now so different that there's an armed conflict happening. And then I have two sources about humans in the loop, um, also known as pieces that make visible the roles that human content moderators play across the world in keeping our digital spaces safe. One of them is an article called The Exploited Labor Behind Artificial Intelligence. And another is a really wonderful book by the UCLA scholar Sarah T. Roberts. And that book is called Behind the Screen content moderation in the shadows of social media. So collectively to me, these articles and book just really show the gigantic challenge of content moderation. A lot of discourse on Twitter this week has also been about AI. And I think these pieces also highlight the human challenge of content moderation and the important roles that humans play in terms of managing cultural diversity and managing workers around the world. I see this as a really humanistic challenge that works hand in hand with tech. So I think it's exciting to have you here, Shankar, being that you are the CTO of Trust Lab. And the looking at these pieces today, again, just reminded me, you know, why I called this session content moderation is hard. <laughs> so with all that, Shankar, I'd love to bring you in and welcome you. We never have actually met before tonight. So I'm super grateful that you're here. And I would love to start out by just inviting you to introduce yourself, tell us more about Trust Lab and your role there. Um, Trust Lab is a startup that we uh, founded, um, three of us, Tom, Benji, and I together co-founded uh, two and a half, three years ago. Um, and we are in the business of providing products um, for trust and safety related issues. So whether it's content classification, are tools for um, human moderators as well as, as, well as analysts um, for uh, social media companies, marketplaces, uh, apps, companies in the public, uh, uh, and also some uh, public sector clients and so on and so forth. Um, so my role here is a co-founder and uh, CTO. So I run uh, engineering here at Trust Lab. So prior to this, I was at YouTube for many years. Uh, where I was working on some of the brand safety challenges that YouTube has faced uh, over the last many years. That's where I got introduced to the world of content moderation. Uh, I find it a really fascinating problem, one that's of great importance for us to get right, uh, but one that's also very difficult and uh, large parts of it remain unsolved. Um, and our hope at Trust Lab is that we are able to find some industry-wide solutions to some of the hard problems in this space. That's awesome. I'm interested to hear how, you know, how it has been just being a CTO and being a co-founder and really being in a leadership position. I mean, I know you were senior before it in your other companies, but what are some of the priorities or the challenges that you feel excited, you know, to be in a leadership role around? I mean, it's so many complex issues that you have to deal with. I really want to get into the <laughs> the meat of them. Yeah. Um, so I think like in a, in a startup environment, there are some unique challenges, right? So a leadership role brings challenges in any environment. For example, in my past role at YouTube, there was certainly a, a lot of challenges. In, first and foremost, making sure that 
the team is is having a great experience and and you are enabling them to do great work um and that is of course easier said than done uh, a lot of challenges there in terms of unblocking teams um and uh, setting a clear vision and and also making sure that the work is delegated appropriately uh, so on and so forth um and also interacting with other functions cross functional interactions all of those challenges in a startup environment we have some additional unique challenges i would say so one of them is that things are changing a lot faster than they are in more established companies uh, because you are often pivoting and and changing course dramatically in order to find market fit uh, uh, or mm-hmm. or find that nugget uh, uh, of technology or product that that is really working and it can be like really stressful for the team when when priorities are changing quickly uh to say the least right so yes. so i think <laughs> we know <laughs> exactly exactly right so so i think your role as a leader um is 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 like all the time you have to make sure that the vision is clear like what we are doing um in the in, i mean not just in in the next few weeks but like how this relates to the bigger picture and how how we are on a path to getting uh to solving the bigger problem how, should always be clear to the team again easier said than done um and then also in in a startup environment oftentimes you are doing many things for the first time at least at the company right whereas in a bigger company you may have other examples of how similar problems were solved and you can go talk to those folks and 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 you can make things happen whereas in a smaller company often many th- many people are doing things for the first time in the company and and so uh, the job of a leader is to is to also make sure that they are enabling them uh, unblocking them in creative ways uh, especially given resources also tend to be quite limited right so you got to make the most out of the limited resources that are available and then uh it's kind of double whammy because resources are limited but the problems you are tackling are typically the hard unsolved problems uh but that's kind of also why the startup experience is so fun and i'm sure like it's the same for for you yeah i'm just thinking of you being at the c suite i think i mean something that i've experienced and were you know so early but like as soon as you figure something out there's something else to figure out and so maybe someone that you manage is not doing something for the first time or they're not doing something for the first time maybe in their career but when you have a new startup you know especially something like what you're doing i wouldn't say this is necessarily true of all companies but you're trying to do something in a way that hasn't been done before and so there's so much creativity and problem solving and you know forging your own path that's happening constantly every day. I mean it's quite inspiring actually to hear from someone in your position that's still, you know, facing those same challenges but also enjoying them because I think that's part of why we do this as well. Yeah, I mean very much so, right? So I think uh, it's it's very important to enjoy the journey um and and uh, challenges often turn into opportunities, right? If you really kind of put your mind to it. So that's really the spirit with which you need to approach it. So especially based on your experience being at YouTube compared with your previous experience at YouTube and in the Google organization how do you see Trust Lab doing things differently or what is it really adding to the space you know and I don't ask that in a critical way like there's so much work to be done I think in content moderation but could you tell us a little bit more about Trust Lab's approach to that yeah so um 
if I compare, obviously, like YouTube and Google is a whole different universe compared to Trust Lab um, in the sense that YouTube is a YouTube and Google are kind of very large, mature, successful companies with lots of users, and they have many of the procedures uh, figured out uh, at this point, right? I mean, uh, whereas uh, Trust Lab, obviously, like we are, we are a much younger company. So I would say like a couple of things are are really different. Uh, one of them is that at Trust Lab, we are a third party, so we are working with platforms and social media companies um, to solve a variety of different challenges. Um, and, and so that's whereas at YouTube or Google, it was often common to go very deep into like one problem and, and, and you are building solutions that are really kind of fitting that particular environment, that particular product. As a third party startup, you have to build solutions in a more general way. Uh, so many platforms can benefit from that. Um, so the experience from YouTube certainly helps from the standpoint of um, how to scale systems and processes and, and also kind of dealing with lots of different corner cases and, and kind of high stress situations. But it's a different ballgame here in terms of building more generalizable solutions that can apply to um, different platforms. Um, another thing I would say that's, that's a bit different is that um, in in a in a platform, typically like you are looking across different concerns. Like for example, um, there are different stakeholders like creators, content creators, um, end users, users who are consuming content, um, regulators, advertisers, and so on and so forth. And you are trying to balance the concerns of these different stakeholders and uh, uh, kind of building solutions that 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 can satisfy the needs of all of these different stakeholders. And sometimes there is a push and pull, right? Because certain stakeholders uh, at, at some time uh, can carry more importance and, and there's a push and pull that happens. Um, whereas out here, I mean, we are, because we are operating a business, we are primarily helping solve problems uh, that, that the client is encountering, right? And of course, like, but they have to definitely balance uh, these different interests, but oftentimes like they have taken a certain perspective and then we are working with them to uh, maximize this, their results given the, given the particular perspective they have taken in terms of how to balance the needs of these different stakeholders. Right? So in that sense, like you are not necessarily thinking so much about how to balance the needs of these different stakeholders, uh, but really like you are working uh, to, to help realize the the particular goals that that the clients have set for themselves um, and, and you are providing like services and products that can best implement uh, those goals. How do you guys balance as a company? You know, that's really interesting now that I think about it because you got you, you know, Trust Lab is B2B. So, you know, thinking about a Google or a Twitter or Facebook, they're huge companies as you've discussed, but they also are really working very hard to create their own content moderation guidelines and enforce them. Whereas you are working with different companies that, as you just said, have their own goals about what they want to manage and moderate. How do you all balance 
you know, your own kind of values or mission, like what you really want to build for? Do you ever have clients where they want to moderate things that you don't want to help them with, or that's not what your products are designed to do? Like, how do you, how do you interface with those different clients that do have different goals when they bring in a third party service like yours? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think like, yeah, and, and that goes back to the point that I made about um, here, we are typically not drafting the policies, right? But we are helping companies implement this, their policies by providing them kind of the component solutions, right? Whether it's classifiers or tools uh, right. that they can bring together, uh, together with like their own in-house technology and tools and as well as other third-party tools and 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 technologies to, to kind of solve the problem, right? So, um, and, and in that context, yes, certainly like, there could be a scenario where their philosophy is quite different from ours, right? Uh, so usually um, these types of situations, we can figure them out very early on. So like right at the beginning of our engagement with a potential customer, um, we can usually uh, see whether what they are trying to do is consistent with um, our philosophy. Um, and uh, if not, then then usually we are we back out at that stage itself and and once we get past that i mean usually i find that um the the details can be worked out um the, the, there are two things that are important for that so one of them is is that our technology needs to be flexible so for example let's say we are building classifiers um different platforms may have depending on like their the state of their content as well as how good their internal solutions are. Uh, they, their problem may be either they want to have more recall, for example, which means like they are not able to catch enough of the bad content or, or policy violating content, and they need to catch more of it. And so they are looking for us to help augment the recall of, of their internal solutions. Or it could be the other way around where, where they might say that uh, we want to catch the, the really bad egregious stuff, right? It's not about the catching the long tail of the bad content but we we want to be catching the 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 um head head side of the bad content um but we want to catch it at high precision right because in order for us to act on it we want to make sure that the precision is very high right so what this means is that for some clients they may want they may be looking for a solution where the precision is very high meaning when we flag something as bad um it it should they should have high confidence that it is bad Whereas other clients may be looking more uh, from the look, looking more for us to help them catch long tail bad content, and and so in order to meet both of these use cases, we need to make sure that our uh, classifiers are built in a way that they have uh, kind of either they are self learning and and can adapt to a certain use case, or we provide easy to use knobs uh, that the client is able to configure. And, and and then achieve the goal that they are setting out for. Uh, so this is on the purely technical side. Um, but on the policy side as well, I mean, one, one thing that, that we do is that we try to build, instead of like, let's say, let's take a particular example like um, misinformation, right? So suppose the pla platforms want to come to us and, and, and get help in terms of classifying content as misinformation or moderating that content. Uh, so in that scenario, uh, misinformation, as you can imagine, is is a is is it tends to have a lot of gray area, right? So, whether or not you consider something misinformation um, uh, could change. Like a certain, uh, a certain platform 
for yes. example, could have a policy that um, I don't care about misinformation unless it really causes user harm, right? Uh, so, so for example, a common example that we tend to give is there may be a picture of a celebrity, like for example, Tom Cruise, a picture of Tom Cruise sitting on top of Burj Khalifa. And then some folks were saying that like, this is not the real picture and, and it's not him, it's a kind of doctored picture. Now that kind of situation, even if it is misinformation, is unlikely to cause real world harm. Right. Um, but there is obviously other things like, for example, there's COVID vaccine related things or election related misinformation that could cause a real world harm. And so, for example, one, one platform could have a policy that I only want to act on cases that cause real world harm, uh, whereas another platform may be interested in, in also catching uh, cases that have low real world harm. Uh, it's just one dimension, right? But there are many dimensions of misinformation. When we are building our policies, our internal policies, and, our, and, and on which on top of which our classifiers and other solutions are built, usually we are we are building them in a componentized way, right? Meaning we have different dimensions along which we are looking at content, like for example, potential for harm might be one dimension. And so when when we do that, then the advantage is that we are able to uh, put together a solution for the client, even if our, for put together solutions for multiple clients even if their policies are not, not exactly the same. Um, so that basically, one, one way to think about that is the non-technical analogy is like, if your solution is built using kind of Lego blocks, then it's easy to reconfigure it to meet different use cases. Um, on the other hand, if you, have one, if you have one rigid solution, then it's difficult to, to use that to meet the needs of, of different clients. How does that differ you know, you gave us one parameter where different clients could want to engage with that parameter differently. Are you finding, you know, as the chief technologist there, that there are also technical differences between different types of content that you want to moderate for, like a misinformation versus a hate speech versus an identity fraud versus a, you know, targeted harassment how does moderating for those different kinds of content or building tools for catching those different kinds of content vary? Yeah, great question, right? So definitely there is a difference. I mean, we, we like to call these verticals, like different verticals. verticals. Um, yeah, so misinformation is one vertical, hate speech is another. Um, and definitely there are challenges that are unique uh, to each vertical. Um, so as one example, right? So one thing that sets, for example, misinformation apart from some of the other verticals is that in, in many of the other verticals, um, a trained rater usually can, can tell if, if a certain content is bad by just looking at it, right? So for example, if you're talking about sexual content or violence or profanity, um, I mean, the reason you need to train the rater sometimes is because of what you alluded to earlier, which is that you could have different standards in different regions, right? In terms right. of what's acceptable and what is not. Uh, or so just that, disagreement, right? Like some people yeah. want to say things that I would consider hateful, but they don't consider it that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? So for, for that reason, like definitely you need to, uh, you need to have trained moderators. Uh, but usually a trained moderator um, is able to look at the content uh, when it's talking about, when we're talking about things like hate speech or, or uh, um, sexual content or violent content, uh, and they are able to tell, spot it. Uh, but but for misinformation, 
it, it, it's not so easy, right? Because there are, um, first of all, like, I mean, no, no person can possibly have um, kind of the knowledge about every single topic, every single issue. Um, and, and then there are kind of thousands of, at any given time, thousands of potential misinformation narratives that are doing the rounds on social media. And uh, uh, like, if you, if you think about it in terms of like traditional policy guidelines are, are kind of policy books that um, a lot of these companies have. Uh, so for, 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 a, for a topic such as hate speech or, or violence, uh, depending on like how big the company is, how long they have been in business and like how, how much content they have, um, those rules could go, could run from like anywhere from like say one page to like 10 pages, right? So you could have one page of rules or like 10 pages of rules that uh, moderators need to be trained on that cover like different uh, nuances and, and kind of cases. Uh, but when it comes to misinformation, uh, at any given time, there are thousands of misinformation narratives that could be out there. And, and so if you try to write a policy book in the traditional sense, uh, your your policy book is going to run into hundreds of thousands of pages and you have to keep adding uh, kind of uh, tens of pages every day. Uh, and, and kind of no moderator can keep all of this in their head. So I think like this is an area where we, where we find like um, the traditional, quote unquote, traditional way of doing content moderation doesn't work. And there is a greater need for uh, assisting the content moderators uh, to, to, to kind of find and catch this type of content. So this is, for example, the challenges that are unique to misinformation. But if you go vertical by vertical, every vertical has some nuances uh, and, 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 and some things that are kind of difficult about it. Um, obviously, there are some verticals where one of the big challenges you have is the negative impact it has on the moderators, right? So if you think about things like uh, really violent imagery or really uh, or kind of child sexual abuse related material, uh, there, I mean, a, a moderator can probably easily tell uh, but the negative impact it has on them is is kind of tremendous, right? So that right. that's a huge, that's a huge challenge you have to deal with. So in that sense, like yeah, I mean there are nuances in each vertical. Like I mean, for, from a technical point of view too, for example, if you look at areas like CSAM, then um, you can't even collect training data easily, right? Because even looking at the tra training, even the training maintaining training data in in normal form could be illegal, right? So you have to go through additional ways to to make sure that uh, you are keeping things legal. Um, so in like even from a technical perspective, if you look at like certain verticals have certain challenges. Uh, and, and then of course the human aspect, when you look at it, then there are other challenges that, that are also uh, unique to certain verticals. I, I, I want to ask, I, oh, go ahead. Well, it's, I might like change the conversation just a little bit, uh, but I, you touched on it a little bit, Shankar, but I was just curious because I've heard story or I've read stories about like moderators, like uh, like just having like trauma from viewing all this content, um, and it's like just a huge detriment to their mental health, as you can imagine, because they have to like view all this stuff that's not suitable for the public. So I, I guess in terms of like I, I guess in terms to frame it into a question, I was just curious on like. How do you, because moderators have a tough job of looking at all this content that no one wants to see. Uh, so I, I was just, I guess I'm just curious on like how you would like, yeah, help the moderators with their, their mental health. 
Yeah, great question. And, and again, this is an area where uh, a, a lot of work still remains to be done. Um, so I think like one one thing we have found is certainly like additional tooling uh, for, for moderators can definitely help, as I mentioned, um, for on the misinformation side, it's not possible for the for the raters to to keep track of everything, right? So it, it just creates like a lot of mental burden. I mean, now a lot of the misin in the misinformation in particular, like a lot of the cases, the content doesn't necessarily have um, the same kind of visceral negative impact uh, that uh, some other types of content might have. Uh, but that being said, we do have a, a another type of risk, right? Which is um, by by looking at this content. Um, Again and again, it's certainly possible that um, your views of the world can start changing, right? Um, like you can get influenced um, in 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 kind of a good way or a bad way uh, by getting exposed to a lot of this content. Um, so that's one thing we we are definitely uh, uh, thinking about, right? So when we organize training materials and other things for for our uh, content moderators, um, we are often making sure that. Uh, we provide them those tools and resources to make sure that like they are aware of the negative impact that the uh, the content uh, repeated viewing of the content might have on them and then another area where um, a lot of work has been done is is to make sure that raters are um, uh, like you are raters are getting enough breaks between uh, reviewing the content right so it's not like they are um, Constantly looking at at, at, at content uh, without any breaks and 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 uh, um, uh, continuously having a negative impact on, on their mental mindset. So I think even simple things like that, like making sure that you you, you are getting uh, raters are getting breaks, um, help. Um, and then uh, tools that highlight like what are what might be the more problematic areas of the content uh, also reduce the mental burden for for raters. Right. So these are. Just a few of the areas, but like a lot more work certainly needs to be done um, in this area. It seems like, you know, as the kind of field advances, there's a tension that's really salient there between these systems becoming more efficient and the challenge that if you're a worker working in these systems, looking at, you know, you're in the hate speech vertical or something, efficiency needs to be. I mean, I think we see this across different kinds of like Uber drivers and Instacart drivers and just different kinds of like labor in the digital economy. But what you're describing is kind of, you know, if you're doing this work humanely and building your tools humanely, you have to input friction into the system and not make it the most efficient to, you know, so to speak as possible because you'll drive people crazy. <laughs> so there's, I mean, it's not really funny, but I'm, you know, that's how I cope with heavy subjects. Um, but there's, there's a lot of tension there that I'm hearing. Yeah, definitely. Right. So like, uh, efficiency is certainly a, a top consideration for like a lot of the, uh, uh, content moderation teams. Right. So even when you look at metrics, like things like handling time are given like a lot of importance. Uh, but, but but then like quality of the of the of the reviews is also important and and so in that sense like the incentives are somewhat aligned because like if like even if you are uh, let's say you are you are continuously piping like bad content to raters and 
and getting a lot of efficiency in terms of uh, how many they are able to process in, in a given time. Um, but let's say like that's causing like negative mental impact on them, then you're going to pay a price for it, either in terms of the quality of their review suffering, or you might see a lot of attrition, right? So people can't keep doing this for too long. And every time there is an attrition, there is attrition, you're going to pay because uh, the right. new raters are, and, and, and their quality is not going to be as good, all of that, right? So in that sense, like the good, good news here is that the, there are certain incentives uh, for us to make sure that we are providing a more, a, a, be, a better experience for raters. I have another question for you. And I also, you know, to our listener who's a regular guest, just want to remind you always that you're welcome to request to speak um, and ask a, a question, but also remind you always that then you consent to be on our podcast. Um, but I guess one question that's percolating for me is, you know, why is like, this is a more personal question, but, you know, why is this the area that you moved into? You know, you obviously must be a really talented engineer. There's so many different problems to work on in the space, working at a company like Google or at YouTube. You know, what really motivates you or what, I mean, I guess that sums it up. Like, what motivates you to work in this trust and safety space, which is so complex, has so many challenges, but, you know, is obviously so important as well? Yeah, I think like so early on in my career, um, I was much more focused on is, is the technical problem interesting, right? I mean, I was not so concerned about uh, uh, the, the the nature of impact it has on the world, right? I mean, like so by, by that, I don't mean necessarily uh, kind of positive or negative impact, uh, but but I mean like, um, for example, like early on, like one of the things I, I worked on at, at Google was increasing user engagement. Um, and 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 so getting more clicks and 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 things like that, right? And and so um, obviously you are having impact, and and uh, uh, people who are clicking on the increased clicks on the content could certainly translate to positive impact if if the users, assuming the users are finding the content that they are clicking on useful. But I mean, I was not paying so much attention to that aspect. I, I was more caught up in, okay, what are the technical algorithms? And if I change this algorithm on this, and what type of data requires what type of algorithms, and and if I tweak some algorithms here and there or bring a new algorithm, I'm able to bring a 10% improvement on 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 this data set, which was considered a hard data set. That was kind of what used to drive me, right? Which is the let me take on hard technical problems and then uh, show improvement um, like hasn't been seen before. Uh, but I was not, I was a little divorced from like what is what kind of impact does this have in the real world? Uh, although, of course, if, if anything you touch at Google or most things you touch at Google will have like some kind of uh, real world impact. No questions asked. So it's not like uh, right. a lot of but other But that wasn't where... how you were thinking about them, right? You were thinking yeah, about technical exactly. solutions and meeting your metrics. Yes, exactly. But like as I got older, though, I mean, I started paying more attention to uh, maybe this is a natural transition that most people go through or maybe maybe some people see the light when they are much younger, but I did not. Um, but like I happened to, as I got older, I, I happened to start thinking more about what is the real world impact uh, of of the work. And uh, for content moderation in particular, like, I mean, the reason why it was it the, the real world impact I could relate to more readily than some of the other types of work I was doing before is that I was finding that the work was impacting 
even people around me right like so so for example uh, my mom who's in who lives in india would often complain to me that uh, there is a lot of misinformation on social media right and and she would say that mm-hmm. like hey i can't trust anything anymore uh, or like alion like she was like i was very naive and 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 i was listening to this and i thought it was true and like and later on when i found out that it's not true i i i'm shocked like how can anybody let somebody upload something that's clearly false like that right so let me feel that like look we as technologists we are introducing all this technology and kind of imposing that on on the rest of the world's population and many of them are struggling with it right uh, and 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 so I, i felt like we also need to be responsible for the impact like technology is having on the world and we we as in technologists need to be responsible to kind of mitigate the bad impact that technology is having on the world and and that's where like i felt like this problem was really meaningful to me um and i decided to focus on on this a lot more in the next phase of my career that's awesome we're with you <laughs> i'm wondering i mean i know i've been peppering you with questions i wonder if other folks on the call um want to ask you anything or if there's anything you want to talk about that i haven't asked you about yet um so obviously there are lots of things i can talk about but i much prefer i talk about something that's of interest to you i mean i have my whole list of questions here brett if you don't want to jump in i think another one that's really salient for me because i'm very you know at germ we're trying to build an encrypted messenger and i really see a space for an encrypted messenger that is developed with trust and safety as a priority for day one, because there's a lot of technical challenges with doing that. But at the same time, it's hard to retrofit one or the other, you know, if you start with trust and safety, but you're not prioritizing privacy, or if you're prioritizing privacy, but you're not thinking about trust. So that's something that I am really passionate about um, and stubborn about, you know, as we get this company off the ground. So I would say that is a big question um, about your thoughts on that tension between privacy and individuals' right to have privacy with the need for, you know, shining light on the dark corners of the web and effectively content moderating while respecting folks' privacy. Yeah, I mean, this uh, is clearly a hard problem, right? I mean, um, both sides have, ha- I mean, both sides of the argument there are people who have really passionate arguments and and they kind of make sense uh, i was at the stanford's uh, trust and safety research conference maybe a month or two ago mm-hmm. and uh, and i remember like one of the speakers uh, who has been doing a lot of work in the uh, child uh, csam space right um, and and she she was mentioning uh, that this privacy i mean all of the folks who are talking about privacy i understand where they are coming from but they should also recognize that uh the more uh, easy you make uh, it uh, to kind of private sharing of content uh in in kind of encrypted ways where where others cannot um i mean the traditional types of content moderation or other types of solutions may not apply uh the more you have to recognize that uh it could increase the amount of um uh, csam material that's being shared and things like that right so there could be really bad real world negative effects so, so that's obviously a, a passionate argument from one side of the one side of the aisle and sure like there are uh, equally strong arguments coming from the from the other side um 
So it's a really hard problem. From my point of view, uh, I mean, less from a policy perspective in terms of what, what is the, I don't feel like I'm particularly qualified to comment on from a policy standpoint, like where do you draw the line between kind of these competing concerns? But from a, from a technology perspective, I do feel that if we are able to make better classifiers um, that, that are kind of accurate as well as able to catch the different types of uh, really bad content that could be out there, um, then it enables like more, more possible uh, solutions, such as, for example, uh, you could intervene, right? So right at the time when somebody is posting, if, if, if your classifier can reliably catch it, um, then you can prevent such content from being posted uh, even on a encrypted um, kind of group channel, right? So, so I, 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 so I'm much more interested in that side, which is like how can we keep improving the technology uh, to the point where it can provide more options, uh, so that uh, from a policy perspective or like from a uh, real world perspective or a, or a or a business need perspective, you can achieve like multiple outcomes once like the technology is, is really good. So that's kind of where I would like to move things. I guess another question that I'll throw at you, this is a totally different subject, but it's something that I'm very interested in and I have watched in the trust and safety space because part of my training as a literacy educator and researcher is that I taught a lot and I studied a lot about multilingualism and something that I've noticed in the literature on content moderation is that it, it seems to me as a more sort of human or priorities problem, but we're seeing that there's not as robust of content moderation in sort of global markets beside, beyond like the English speaking world or the European, you know, language speaking worlds. Um, there was just a report that I think came out today that I only skimmed, so I shouldn't talk about it too much, but I believe it said something like there was 50% of content moderation attention at Meta to the United States and Canada, but were actually only 9% of their global user base. And you mentioned, you know, your mom in India as well. I'm wondering just how global diversity or language, you know, plays into these systems or the work that you're doing at Trust Lab. I mean, is that really a tech? I don't even know so much about translating, you know, software across languages. Is that really a technical challenge or is it more about just hiring more people in different countries that have local cultural knowledge? So that's just a whole area that I'll open, I'll open up to you. Yeah, great question, right? I mean, so even when we work with like large tech companies, the one area that inevitably comes up is uh, kind of global coverage, right? I mean, especially like in smaller languages and regions, because like if you think about it, I mean, a lot of these companies, the way they organize things is they have to staff these teams, right, of policy specialists and, and then acquire vendors and, and kind of doing this in in uh, US and English is hard enough, but like once you start thinking about like the dozen different languages um, with, with kind of nuances across different regions, uh, then all of a sudden your costs multiply and and and, and it becomes prohibitive, prohibitive right? Um, I think the stat that you mentioned, I suspect like part of that probably comes from 
uh, even though like i mean i don't want to pretend that i know this for sure but but my my guess is that uh, i mean ultimately like things do follow revenue to some extent right because right. if there is more revenue if there is more revenue in the us market then uh, there is obviously a greater need to protect that right from a, either because like either from regulatory scrutiny or action right or, or maybe because like uh, you you are at risk of losing advertiser revenue right so uh, because larger brands in the us may be more sensitive to uh, their ads showing on some types of content because they are getting more grief from from their own users right um, so that's tends to be one reason right so uh, that because there is a desire to protect the revenue or user base uh, here in the us uh, more resources are being devoted to uh, solving the problem here um, but that also actually like i mean in a way that stat right there seems to show what percentage of the problem is really unsolved right because if, if you look at uh, again I, I don't remember exactly the stat you mentioned but something like 9% of the user base is here or 50% of the resources yes i'm trying to find it as well what i said was 50% um the U.S. and Canada are getting 50% of the resources or attention, but the user base here is 9% of the global user base. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, I mean, if, if you naively do some the, some calculation based on that, I mean, one, one can probably conclude that, uh, the, like, I mean, if you multiply that 9% by kind of 10x, right? If you 10x that, uh, then then basically, like, it, it seems like you need to be putting 5x more resources overall on this problem, hmm. right? So, in, or, or in other words, like maybe only 20% of the problem is being solved, right? So so I feel like to me, like that is the big opportunity for, especially as a, as a, um, a third-party company operating in this space is that I feel like 80% of the problem is unsolved when it comes to kind of the global markets, right? I mean, our, our kind of global user base now. Uh, a lot of companies would love to, I mean, even though like they are, as I, said, as I mentioned, they have greater scrutiny and they are trying to protect more the revenue and user base here, uh, they would love to solve the problem comprehensively. And and that's where like, if you are able to provide great solutions, uh, I, I feel there's a big opportunity and that's what is actually excites, at, excites us here at Trust Lab. Well, we're, we're getting near the close of the hour. Brett, do you want, do you have anything that's coming to mind for you? No, I mean, I, I'm trying to like, I've been trying to think of like how to frame this as a question or something, but, but I can't. So I'll just, I guess I'll share an say, observation. Yeah, I guess I'll <laughs> share it as an observation. But, you know, I, I guess I've just been like, just I'm thinking of like content moderation as a whole of um, like how like difficult a job that's going to be. And I guess <laughs> my initial question is any indication that's something that I think a lot about. And, yeah, I guess I'm just, you know, I I guess there there is more of this, like, push towards, like, automation, I guess. And so, like, maybe that is a way to frame it into a question of, like, how do we... Because automation, there is that element of, like, the computers moderating us. And, you know, like, in a way, it, it already controls, like, a lot of things, like our, like, the algorithms and, and things like that. So or a lot of our lives. And I, I guess I'm just 
I don't know. I, I guess I'm just trying to think of like, how do we make moderation easier, but also like the, so that like people don't have to see this every day. And it's just like a computer that does the difficult part for us. But I don't know. I guess there is that like trickiness of like what, what does the, like the, the robot think is worth saving and what's, what does the robot think? isn't worth saving i don't know or like just the fact that like in our discord we have bots that introduce people as soon as someone enters a discord chat they create channels they know who's joining they know who's not joining um and in a way that is like moderation in its own way um and i think they have like some of the the bots we don't really use it but like th- those bots do have the power to ban users if they get unruly or whatever. But but yeah, I, I guess I I was just thinking of like just the the line it would take for like an automation or from like a bot versus just the human being a moderator. Yeah, I mean I I I, I think it's definitely interesting. I mean the the notion that computers can moderate us uh, certainly can be unsettling. Um, uh, one thing though is like I mean a lot of the I think one problem we have is that the, the bots or computers have a lot of, I mean, usually they are trained based on machine learning algorithms. And, and, and then those machine learning algorithms are in turn trained on like human ratings typically, right? So of course, like computers have a certain way of, of um, learning information, which is probably different from like how humans understand and, 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 uh, uh, and do stuff. Um, but one way of, to think about it is that uh, when we are deploying a machine learning algorithm, the machine learning algorithm is basically reflecting the wisdom of the of the raters who were responsible for labeling the data that was used in the training, right? And and uh, and in some sense, it, it is like learning from the collective of those responses. And there could be a question here in terms of. Um, how representative are the are those labels, right? So, like, like as an extreme example, right? So, su- suppose I I take all the training data examples from from raters who who have who are at one end of the political spectrum, and then train a model from it, and then apply that model to uh, uh, and then have that model applied in 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 the real world. Then it can end up uh, censoring people who are on the other side of the political spectrum, right? Primarily because what the model has learned is is based on the inputs provided to it uh, by by the raters um, who were used for collecting that that training data. So even keeping aside this notion of hey computers are controlling us, the way this process is set up could be ripe for a lot of problems, right? Like I mean, if you may, if you don't if you don't ensure that the data that's being collected and fed to the algorithms doesn't have various manners of biases, then it's 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 unleashing a type of censorship, right? Where like certain types of users are kind of controlling the narrative and and therefore causing censorship for other users um and and so i feel like that problem has to be has to be uh, solved very carefully i mean what you're saying is so juicy to me because there's been so much talk about ai this week with the new chat gps being released and also that lenza app being released for visuals and i guess I really agree with what you're saying enthusiastically, but I also see that, you know, you said it and it sounds so obvious, but what I see as a lay kind of enthusiast of tech news 
that's following all these conversations on AI is that political, my understanding is that this is what, you know, Timnit Gebru and the whole ethical AI team was basically fired from Google for was drawing attention to the lack of labeling of the data inputs that were going into a lot of their large language models that they were producing so that the models were producing, you know, racist, sexist um, outputs. What you're describing, I mean, it's so obvious and it's so obvious to me too that as someone that has done, you know, culturally responsive research is that you have to label your data and you have to identify your data or the output is just a mess, basically. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it, it is a really hard problem, right? Because um, you're, you, in order for us to make sure, I mean, making sure that the data doesn't have any bias, it, it it's a hard problem because even measuring bias or evaluating like uh, what, what is a good metric for 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 bias and under these situations itself is a hard problem um, and and uh, uh, of course once you come up with like good metrics then there is a whole other challenge in terms of how do you how do you come up with techniques that that can really accomplish uh, achieve the goals that you have set on those metrics but even just setting the right metric uh, has been a challenge in in this area but one thing I, I also want to say is like this is True, even if you took the computers out of the equation, right, which is if, if you just have human moderators, uh, even then those human moderators, I mean, could be biased in certain ways and, and, and that could cause kind of censorship of other users. Right. And and so, so it's like, it's it's not a problem that's like entirely unique to computers, but of course, like computers can can magnify the problem, right, and, and kind of make it a lot worse than it is. But it has to first start with like us solving the human part of the problem, which is we make sure that the the, the way the labelers are labeling data is, is, is kind of as bias-free as possible. And, and, and then we have good metrics to measure that. And then once we have that, I mean, then we can train models and apply those same metrics on the models to make sure that their outputs are also conforming to good standards. I'm just writing down the sentence you just had because I it's interesting to me as a humanist. You said the way labelers are labeling data are as bias-free as possible. I feel like one of the challenges in this space is that content moderation is always coming from a place of values and there's always bias if we want to call it bias. But I think that's really the argument at the core of all of these debates. And I really like how you gave us that, you know, thought exercise of if you take computers out of the equation, you have the same problem with humans, but humans really disagree about, you know, what should be moderated, what should not be moderated, what are the bounds of free speech? I mean, misinformation, what actually is true is even a debate now, you know, it's easy in some cases to say, okay, this photo was doctored, and this post is saying that it's not doctored, but it's harder to say, what's the scientific consensus on an emergent medical phenomenon, like, it's really complex stuff that we're wading in here. Yes, and, and, and that consensus can also change over time, right? I mean, that, that makes it like even harder. Yes, 100%, 100%. Well, I think Brett was able to just hop in and listen a little bit. He was having some technical issues. But we're a few minutes after the hour, and I think it's a good time to wind us down. Oh, we just had a listener join. Um, we'll welcome, and we're going to be winding down the space here in a moment. But then you'll be able to listen from the beginning for the same link that you just joined. Shankar, thank you so much for spending your evening with us that this was really 
fascinating. I feel like I could just pepper you with questions for another hour after this. Um, but Thank I really you. appreciate. Well. Oh, there you are. Yeah, I was able to listen on my computer, and it says Brett Duboff as a listener. I'm hopefully when I re-listen to this again, I'll be able to uh, hear your response, Shankar. Sorry, I can't. I couldn't hear you the other time, but um, but yes. Anyways, yeah, you can close this out, Tessa. Just wanted to say thank you. Um, you know, these are such incredibly complex and important problems that you're working on, and I we feel really lucky at Germ to have Tom as our advisor um, and to get to talk to folks like you about how you're working on these issues. And we're hoping to be, you know, a little bit behind you in your footsteps, building our own trust and safety forward platform. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really had a great time uh, and, uh, for, for some of those questions. Uh, in, those, in, in some cases, I was a little out of my depth, but I <laughs> nevertheless enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good night.